You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If you are here for the first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. Did you like the acapella uh, singing this morning? Thank you, Dr. Whitley, for leading us. Um, And thank you, choir and worship team, uh, Pastor David, Dr. David, had been planning that for a long time. And uh, it was beautiful. Thank you so much for doing it. And I hate to put this word right on the end of talking about something so beautiful, but I want to know who's responsible for moving the clock ahead. I anticipated another hour to preach this morning, and so... I'm a little frustrated that somebody is that on task that they got that going. Because this is the last week for one service, so I can go a little long. I want to ask, how many can do? So, uh, that just, I want to ask, how many of you, I'm going to ask if you plan to come to the first service at 9 o'clock or the second service at 1045, if you're not serving and, you know, all other things, everything else in consideration, which would, how many of you plan to come to the first service? All right, good, that's a lot. How many of you plan to come to the second service? All right, not as many. Uh, uh, is there anyone who would like to stay for the second service? After the, um, students will be back next week. Uh, we know which one they'll come to, <laughs> the second service. And also, most of our visitors will come to the second service. So I'm actually glad a number of you are planning to come to the first. Uh, I, I don't talk about this a whole lot, not, not from here. I do some uh, with individuals, although it's been a while since I've talked about it. But I, I, I could be wrong. Look, I, I, wanna, I pray for revival just like all of you do. In our land, I pray for the for revival. Typically, the pattern of God is that the gospel goes somewhere, sets up shop for a good while, then it moves on. And all indications are we're on the downward slope of that trajectory. And the gospel is probably moving to Asia and Africa. And those two places are places that Mike Rader, that we heard about this morning, (coughs) focuses on. And when he teaches people how to preach, he first teaches them how to understand Scripture so that they are preaching expositorily. And they're, they're, they're letting the text drive their message, not their message inform the text and say, okay, well, let's just move it around a little bit. His ministry is vital, so please... Pray for that. And I was corresponding with uh, Mike this week, and um, he was saying how much he longs to get back here and, uh, and and just be with the people of grace. And we would also love for him to uh, preach. So, speaking of preaching, have you ever known a friend or a family member or a colleague to become 
angry, just suddenly. It seems like suddenly become angry. And then do and say things that just blow your mind. It's like, I never expected that out of him. I didn't see that coming from her. Where, did, where in the world did that come from? This person just exploded out of the blue. Well, if you're ever going to point to such an incident in Jesus' life, I'm going to guess it would be you would point with me to the cleansing of the temple when he drove out the money changers and those who were selling animals for sacrifice. They were selling actually to people who had come from a distance and didn't want to bring animals with them for sacrifice. They were selling them so that they could have proper sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. For Jesus to make a whip out of cords and drive people out, upsetting the religious activities at Yahweh's temple, and one assumes, at least for some, inflicting physical pain. That's just not the Jesus that a lot of people assume that he was. But there's the rub. Jesus is not who we assume he is. Jesus is who he is. And we're called to listen to what he is said about him, what he says about himself, and then believe. And so we come to John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. And as we do, it would be good for us to ask the Lord to open our hearts and our spiritual eyes to see what he wants us to see in what is admittedly a difficult text. If you approach this text with, I'm just trying to understand how this applies to my life and how this is going to help get me through the week then you may be in trouble this week when you walk into the break room at work with a whip and say, everybody out! <laughs> Somebody suggested, when I told them this was going to be the text, they said, um, you should have a whip up there. And I'm thinking, you know, it's like those commercials where you just imagine what would happen. I, I know what would happen. if I, But I'm not the Lord anyway. He's the one wielding the whip. And it's not... Our task today to think about how does this text apply to my life? There's going to be application along the way and especially towards the end. But our responsibility is to see Jesus as he is presented in this text. And then come to conclusions about who he is. Do we believe or not? When you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, they're not about how to improve your life. How you can make it through the week. They're about Jesus. Just about who he is. And what our response should be and must be one way or the other. So that's our task this morning. So let's take a moment just quiet our hearts and ask the Lord to make himself large in our understanding. Let's pray.
Father, we have a lot of ideas, a lot of notions about who you are, about who Jesus was and is, and how we expect you to work in our lives. Lord, that's a very natural assumption for multiple reasons. This morning we pray almost as if we're tasting food that our palates would be cleansed and that we would truly be able to taste and see that the Lord is good even when it doesn't make sense. So open our eyes, our hearts, our ears to your word. And Lord, may every one of us, beginning with me, have ears to hear, which means we will believe and obey. So as we read the scripture, may it bring life to us in the name of the one we read about this morning, Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. Verse 12 is transition from last week when he was at Cana and the wedding there uh, to his movement toward Jerusalem. After this, the wedding at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. By the way, the temple was not complete, but they had been working at it for 46 years. It would not be completed until A.D. 63. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So which was more absurd, his statement or their question? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Thank you and be seated. 
If you are familiar with the flow of the Gospels, of all four Gospels, you may wonder why John puts this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry while the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place the cleansing of the temple after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, beginning Holy Week, <coughs> the week in which he would be crucified, betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and resurrected. So why does John put it at the beginning and, and the other gospel authors put it at the end? There are two primary explanations for the difference in timing. One, John placed it there for theological reasons. He's making a point. <laughs> uh, two, there were two separate occasions when Jesus drove out money changers from the temple. The commentaries that I read this week were split on whether they think there was one cleansing or there were two cleansings. My best guess is that there were two cleansings. And for those of you who think about the harmonization of the Gospels, and a lot of you think about that, um, let me give you my reasons. If, as we have pointed out, John is very precise in his recollection of Jesus' activities and the chronology of his ministry and teaching, then it would seem odd to place this one important event out of order. That doesn't mean it's not possible. Uh, there are a lot of commentaries, like I say, conservative uh, theologians who say, look, there's only one, and John's putting it here for a specific reason, to show that Jesus was presenting a new way of salvation that called for a radically new temple, not just a, a purified temple, but a radically new temple. In fact, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days, and they just mocked him mercilessly, they would be the very ones who would crucify him and then also institute this new way of salvation that would make the temple obsolete. Pretty amazing that all of that was happening. Either way, the fact that Jesus is going to be the new temple, the new the end to all sacrifices, the end to all feast, because everything is fulfilled in Jesus. Even the end of the Sabbath in the way that it was practiced uh, in, in days gone by. There's a guy I follow on Twitter called the Church Curmudgeon. He's really funny. And he said yesterday, Seventh-day Adventist, I see you laughing about this day. You know, where we've got to get up an hour with an hour less sleep and come to church <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Apparently, I'm the only one in the room <laughs> that thinks that was funny. So either way, the truth about Jesus being the new temple is true. And yet, we get our understanding of the length of Jesus' ministry based on John's chronology. He, he gives us three different Passovers at least, possibly a fourth Passover uh, and therefore, we say Jesus' ministry lasted somewhere between two and a half to three and a half years. I'm not sure how we locate this one event out of order. As you can imagine, we could spend the whole morning here and still not solve the problem. You're going to think about it a little more in depth in home group, especially those of you that want to. If it's no big deal to you, you can just move on to the next. There's plenty to think about this week. I will proceed under the assumption that there were two temple cleansings and both would have infuriated the religious leaders. 
John tells us in this account that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. So this is the first of at least three Passover overs that we see Jesus. And then if you look in, in John chapter 5, verse 1, he's talking about being at another feast in Jerusalem. If that's a Passover, then that, there are four of them there. Uh, in John 6, just for interest's sake, we're, we're told that Jesus was in Galilee for one of the Passovers. Most of them he celebrated, though, in Jerusalem. He was always moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, especially in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend almost all of their time talking about his ministry in Galilee. But John's always got him hot-footing it to Jerusalem, especially for the festival and the feast. And he was always creating a stir, always making a mess of things in the eyes of the religious leaders who had a very fine order according to the way that they saw things and a very fine control over the people. And Jesus was messing things up all the time. So what drove Jesus on this account to such violent, albeit righteous, action? Our text tells us about the activity that was going on in the temple when he arrived. Animals were being sold. Money changers were on hand to exchange money into the local um, uh, coin. And so they were actually providing a service. Suppose you would come from, not, not just from Galilee, but suppose you would come from Asia Minor and you wanted to sacrifice that weekend. You didn't want to be lugging a, a sheep or an ox or even trying to carry pigeons in a cage. You just wanted to get there, and then you'll buy your stuff. Just like sometimes when you go on vacation, you say, look, we'll worry about that when we get there. We don't want to have to pack it all. Let's just buy it or rent it when we get there. It's essentially what was going on. So what was wrong with that? Why was Jesus so angry? For starters... This activity was taking place within the temple complex. Not an acceptable place for business. Furthermore, the exchange rate was almost certainly exorbitantly high. And many of the people who were needing animals to sacrifice were poor people. It's not like they had a lot of money. And in addition, there was a temple tax that was required of all the people. And once again, you guessed it. You had to exchange your money for this temple coin that would pay your tax, but it would leave you in a bad way financially. I mean, the exchange was good for the temple and its overseers, primarily the Sadducees more than the Pharisees. It was good for them, but it was bad for the people. Jesus had good reason to be angry. And it was more his presence and anger that drove people out than the whip. Imagine the fury of the Lord seen with your own eyes in that setting. There was more going on here, though, than just a display of righteous indignation. In verse 18, the religious leaders ask, Why, What sign do you show us for doing these things? The leaders understood that this action was not just because Jesus got mad, but it was symbolic. It was 
more than just practical in his thinking. It was symbolic, and they wanted to know what he was trying to symbolize. It's interesting that the Jews weren't upset and didn't say, How dare you do this? They didn't question the legitimacy of his actions. They knew that they'd been called out and busted. But they said, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They knew that the Messiah would do these very types of things when he came. And they wanted to know if he claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, the disciples later connected the dots between Psalm 69.9 and barely performed. Jesus rarely performed signs when skeptics asked him to do so. They were constantly saying, Jesus, put on a little show for us. And he just refused to do it. He rarely answered his critics directly when they plied him with these sorts of questions. But he always bested him. He bested them. And they understood when they understood the implications of his somewhat cryptic answers, they often did not like at all what they heard when they, they said, okay, Jesus, what about this? And he comes at them from another angle and he uses humor, kind of a dry humor. A lot. We don't see it a lot because it, it, it doesn't make sense to us. But there were people around all the time saying, ha, 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 ha. And the laughing was at the expense of the religious leaders. That would infuriate them all the more. Allison and I watched a PBS show this week about John Denver. Um, Jerry Weintraub, John Denver's manager, said, you know, you just can't, you can't force people to like artists. You just have to get them out there, and they either like them or they don't. Expose them to people, they like them or they don't. I like John Denver, he said, and it turns out a lot of other people did as well. I was one of those people. I, I, at any moment, I might just pick up the guitar and Start singing a, a John Denver song. <laughs> There's a great deal more at stake with Jesus than there was for the gifted and personable individual like John Denver, who I read his autobiography many years ago. He, he was just a horrible narcissist in addition to being so gifted. But the principle is again similar. You cannot force people to believe in Jesus as desperately as there are people in your life that you want to force to believe Jesus. All you can do is present Jesus. And then they have to make a choice. And don't present him in a way that you think will be palpable to them. Or palatable, I'm sorry. Palatable to them. A, a way that they'll receive. Oh yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I, I'd like to follow that Jesus. Just present him like he is. Now, don't present him like this all the time. You better get right. No, he's, 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 he's our creator. He's our redeemer. He's a wonderful savior for those who will believe. But present him as he is. That's why pointing unbelievers to the gospel of John is such a good idea. Ask the Lord and trust the Holy Spirit to draw them to Jesus according to the Father's plan and at his initiative. 
in Jesus' response to the leaders, he, enjoyed, he employed a method of interacting and engaging people that he would utilize over and over and over again. Jesus would make a physical, uh, use an illustration with a, a, a physical point. He was making a physical analogy to you. To, he was using a physical analogy to make a spiritual point. This is going to happen next week when we get to Nicodemus. You must be born again. How can a person be born again? It's going to happen with a woman at the well. I'll give you water that will leave you so that you're never thirsty again. It's going to happen in John 6 when he tells his listeners that in order to be related to him, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. A physical analogy to make a spiritual point that is misunderstood and then later understood in the context of what Jesus was teaching. In John 2, in addition to making a spiritual point, Jesus was prophesying a literal resurrection. The religious leaders responded to Jesus' answer by publicly declaring him to be mentally unstable. This may be the first recorded instance of this accusation, but the claim has been repeated for 2,000 years, and it's also made about his followers. Again, though, when you think about it, which is more ludicrous? Jesus saying, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days, or them taking him literally. They ask, what's the sign? So they know that there's something more going on than just what you can see with the eye. The religious leaders missed the sign, although they claimed to be looking for a sign. Jesus' answer was used as a convenient charge against him by his enemies. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they had to be careful how they did it because Jesus was so popular with the people. One intended consequence of Jesus' comments was that he was, from this point forward, on the religious leaders hit list. They wanted to find a way to kill him, constantly seeking opportunities to put him to death. But this, of course, was all part of God's plan. Is it a glorious plan? I think we would all say yes. Is what's going on in your life a part of his glorious plan? A little more difficult, isn't it, at times to say yes. So let me ask you a question. Did Jesus err in passing judgment on the religious leaders by disrupting their profitable service, their service that they were providing to the worshipers? Uh, your answer may depend largely on whether you believe Jesus was and is the divine son of God or not. If you believe that Jesus is God, this this account may make you a little bit uncomfortable. Ooh, don't you imagine his disciples were uncomfortable? But you're never going to say he had no right to do that. What was he thinking? He made a mistake. If you think that Jesus shouldn't have gotten mad and upset the system, chances are you do not have as high a view of Jesus as the Bible presents. 
Maybe you're okay with Jesus cleansing the temple, but you are most certainly not okay with your best friend not speaking to you and you have no idea what the problem is. So long as Jesus was working in the first century, fine. When he's messing in the 21st century and messing with my life, though, that's another story. I'm just not how sure, I'm not sure how fair what's happening to me is. Can God be trusted? Yes, of course, but there are times that life just doesn't add up in our thinking with the way we anticipate a loving and sovereign God to cause them to go. So what's up with that? What's up with that is that God is who he is, and we are called to trust him no matter how difficult our circumstances are, no matter how crazy life is, no matter how hard his commands are to obey in a culture like ours. Especially when we live in a day that is increasingly, as a, as a nation, refusing to exalt Jesus above everyone else. And in fact, is looking for a way to rid the land of this scourge. God imposing his will upon the people. I imagine Jesus' actions were just as shocking to the disciples as they were to the religious leaders. They had seen him turn water into wine and turn angst into great joy with the Messiah coming onto the scene. But now the tables have turned, literally. The tables have turned. And instead of everyone rejoicing that the Messiah had come, the religious leaders were seeking to kill him. Even so, even so, many were attracted to Jesus. No doubt in part because they understood very well what he had done in cleansing the temple. He was making a bold statement about injustice which detracted from God's glory. And so a lot of people believed in him. Yes, I applaud that action, Jesus. I believe in you. <clears throat> but Jesus did not commit himself to everyone. And many who approved of his actions... Because they were not trusting him with their lives. They may have approved of some of the things that he did. But had they given themselves fully over to Jesus? Verses 23 to 25 are sobering. Calling for all of us to make sure that our connection with Christianity and with Jesus is genuine. That doesn't mean you need to worry about your, the quality of your faith. That's going to only turn your focus inward. And I know it's difficult when you say something like that. When you read these verses like, <clears throat> well, I believe in him, but I really, I wonder if he believes in me. It's the object of your faith that is important. Believe Jesus more than just being one who, who does things that you agree with, does things that you like. Trust your entire soul to him because he died on your behalf. Believe Jesus for who he is, not for who you want him to be. D.A. Carson says this, quote, If you believe something that is not true, then your faith is not commendable because it is sincere. 
It is worthless unless the object of that faith is valid. End quote. Look, when somebody says, I just don't know how people live without faith. It's my faith that gets me through. Your faith in what? Your faith in faith? Because that's what a lot of people mean when they talk about faith. And even if you press people and they say, yes, no, of course, my faith is in God or my faith is in Jesus. If you're not leaning 100% on him for the salvation of your soul, then it could be that you have faith that everything is going to turn out all right. On what basis? Unless we acknowledge God's right to turn our worlds totally upside down which in turn may reveal our sin. And unless we put every ounce of our hope in eternal life on Jesus alone and in his shed blood, where on the cross he took upon himself God's wrath that we deserve, then we may claim to believe in Jesus, but he will not commit himself to us when we see him simply as a means for a better life. All week, as I've thought about this text, my heart and mind have been drawn to Psalm 50, which is a long way from Psalm 23. If you have your Bible with you or if it's on your phone, turn or scroll to Psalm 50 right now. There are going to be some verses on the screen. This first verse that I want to share with you, though, is not going to be on the screen. And you, you should always be flipping all over in the Bible. Know where everything sitting in the Bible. That will help your understanding of God and of Jesus to grow. In Psalm 50, God calls his people to examine their hearts and to quit treating Yahweh, their creator and redeemer, as a mere human that they can manipulate by their religious activities. How many people today think, look, I, I, I go to church, I give to the church, I do good works, my goodness, what more does God expect of me? He expects you to just believe him. That it's not your good works that make you right with God. It's only faith in Jesus and what he's done. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God says this. These things you have done, and I have been silent. So this activity had gone on for a long time long time when Jesus came in and cleared the temple. These things have you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I will rebuke you and charge you. One of our biggest mistakes is thinking that God is very much like we are. That Jesus was just a really good man. He was God. He is God. And he can do as he will. I'm going to close our, our time this morning by reading from Psalm 50 and then making brief application from the last two verses that we read, which are verses 14 and 15. Even though there's no official connection between John 2 and Psalm 50, it's almost as if Jesus had this psalm in his mind as he cleared the temple. Let's begin in verse 7, Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, 
Your God are continually before me. Do I rebuke you? Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves is mine. You ever sing that little chorus, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills? We used to sing it when I was young. Um, it, it, it goes, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rocks in every mine, diamonds, whatever. And then it says this, wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. In other words, God owns everything and he's going to meet my needs. Do you think that's what this verse is saying? God is saying, look. You bring these offerings to me and you say, look what I'm doing for the Lord. I put my check in the plate. I do this. I do that. I serve at the soup kitchen. He's like, I don't need your offerings. I own everything. Cattle on a thousand hills. I don't want your stuff. I want your heart. Aren't you glad Pastor David puts so much time into the songs that he chooses for Sunday morning. When, when we hear songs being sung or the, the, the worship team leading us to worship God according to his word, you can be sure that a lot of thought is going into this. Some songs you may hear on the radio and say, oh, let's, Pastor David, please play this song. Let's, let's do this song. He's taking his time. Sometimes we get around and we sing them after we've massaged it a lot in, in, in staff meetings and in different places. He's thinking about sometimes we don't sing them. So all of this is not to say that religious activity is wrong. In fact, it's very important. It does mean, though, that our actions, when our actions are not accompanied by faith, we are wasting God's time and ours. Verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He could be saying to us, do I cash your checks and buy some stuff that makes me happy? Do I partake of, of the things that you do for other people? Do I benefit from that? Saying, I want your heart. And then verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So we're going to very quickly get back to seeing that good works are very useful, but only after faith, not before faith. It's not that we do our good works to commend ourselves to God, but it's because of what he's done for us that we serve from a, a, a heart that overflows with love and gratitude. So as application to John 2, we could surely talk about how Jesus' sacrifice will end all sacrifices and how the temple of the Holy Spirit will be the church in the future, <coughs> according to the teachings of the apostles, both 
that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are the temple. It, it, it presents both in the New Testament epistles. I would also say that we must accept Jesus as he is, not how we want him to be. We must acknowledge that he has the authority to call us out when we sin, and he has the right to call us to trust him when he turns everything crazy in our lives, no matter how unfair life seems to be. When we trust him, we can know that all will be made right in his time. So how can we have this kind of faith? Well, after this serious rebuke of, of Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15 give us instruction. First, offer a sacrifice of praise and obey the Lord. Acknowledge God for who he is, creator and redeemer. It's interesting to me, you ever think about this, that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he gave the model of praise before confession. Look, I don't know about you, but when I go to the Lord, my first thought is usually, oh God, please forgive me for my sins. But over and over, we see this model played out. Praise God. Then ask for your needs to be met. Then confess your sins to the Lord. It's difficult to be optimistic in our land. Allison the other day was saying, I haven't seen the news in weeks. I could not tell you anything that's going on. And I told her, oh, sweetheart, it's such good news. The, the, the news channels just every day, it's just one thing. Your heart can hardly contain all the good things that they say. Not so, is it? It's hard to be optimistic in our land. If the health of our culture is our primary concern, and that is accompanied with much attention to our own personal state of being, it's easy to be down about you think of the riches that are yours, though. Not in an unusually large herd of cattle that's going to turn into a nice retirement account for you. But in Jesus, the riches that we have in Jesus, it's not that difficult to praise the Lord. And think of all the troubles of ours that melt away when we offer a sacrifice of praise to Jesus. And when we do that, it is our natural inclination to serve him, not to be so wrapped up in ourselves, but to serve him. And we serve him by serving others. All the things that, that you so desperately want the people around you to do, they will do, and you will do a lot better. If you offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Second, turn to God when you are in trouble. I, I know you know this intellectually, but you probably don't like it emotionally. God's design for troubles in our lives is often to turn us to himself. God bring things, brings things into your life to cause you to turn to him. Oddly enough, trials usually have the opposite effect. 
they turn us away from God. He said, no, well, not me, and maybe not you. But something's going to happen to you that is going to be so difficult that you're going to turn away from God rather than towards him. I think I said this in, in here. I, I, I get on a kick about something, and I say it in a lot of places, and I don't remember where I said it, where I didn't. But you would think that war would turn people to God, right? Absolute opposite effect. War drives people away from God. I don't know why. Self-preservation, um, ingenuity, you just start trusting in yourself rather than God. Trials can do that for us. And God says in Psalm 50, he said, call upon me in the day of trouble. When life is difficult, Turn to the Lord. Quit blaming people. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. I'm sitting on the front row being preached to. Call upon the Lord. Who do you call on when troubles come? Do you call on God or do you call upon your friend or your financial advisor or your lawyer? Those are all good people to call upon, you know, when you have tough times. But call first upon the Lord. Where do you turn in the day of trouble? Turn to the Lord. And then last, glorify Jesus through a cross-centered life. Look, we've been talking about this and it'll come up over and over in, in John. Next week in John 3 it comes up. If Jesus' glory is seen most clearly in the cross, would it not follow that we glorify him most and best when we live cross-centered lives? Maybe that's why we find suffering and glory so often paired in the New Testament. Dying to self is not easy. But the more we focus on Jesus, not the way we want him to be, but the way he is and the way he revealed himself to us, the more we will look like Jesus to others and the more we will glorify God. God's going to receive his glory no matter what we do. When we mess up in the worst of ways, God is glorified. But he invites us to participate in his glory. We do so when we trust Jesus as he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, um, I don't get a kick out of preaching these kinds of texts. But if I'm going to be faithful and true to the text, I don't have a choice but to preach them. Lord, we recognize Jesus' actions as 
an indication of just how you feel about sin. And we look at our own lives and we know that we are sinful men and women, boys and girls. We also know that Jesus took our sin or took the wrath, the punishment for our sin upon himself on the cross. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are continually repenting, continually confessing our sins and continually trusting you to lead us and to, to, to make beautiful men and women who glorify you even when we are called to carry our cross in the most difficult of ways. So Father, we glorify you and ask for your continued presence and love and goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.